Well, today we begin a 31-week journey through the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation. We did this about five years ago with the E100 series, and we received so much positive feedback from you, and we saw so much spiritual growth in our congregation that we decided it was time to do it again. Because we know that the more that you read and understand the Bible, that the more you'll begin to grow in your relationship uh, with God. And we're all going to take this journey together, our children, our students, and of course, our adults. And we're calling this the story because it contains the story of God and His plan for you and me. You see, once you begin to understand how much God loves you and how much God values you, you'll begin to understand how you fit into this world and how you fit into the story of God. Now, the problem is the Bible doesn't read like a modern-day story. In fact, if you were to try to read it from cover to cover, uh, you, you might actually get lost. And the reason is that the Bible is actually composed of 66 different books written by some 40 authors, 30 of them in the Old Testament and 10 of them in the New Testament. Plus, they were separated by hundreds of years. And there are different kinds of literature found in the Bible. There's narrative and poetical and apocalyptic and, and prophetic and, and historical. And so to help us get a, a better sense of the flow of the story, we're going to read it chronologically so that it will feel more like a story to you. And I would really, really encourage you to read it with others. And so if you're not a, a part of a small group or a Bible study or a life group, I really encourage you to get involved with one uh, before you leave today. It's so much more fun to do it with other people. And we're going to break it down into five smaller stories. Uh, the first is the story of the garden, which we're going to start today. The second is the story of Israel. The third act is, is the story of Jesus. The fourth act is the story of the church. And the last story, the fifth story, is called the new garden. And we find that in the book of Revelation. So uh, today we're going to cover the first nine chapters of Genesis. So buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to go through this pretty quickly. And we're going to start in the beginning, in Genesis 1, verse 1. And here are the words that we have. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the first four words of the Bible, we are introduced to the main character of the story, God himself. In the beginning, God says everything, everyone and everything else finds their life and their breath and their being from God. How do we know this? Because the first seven words tell us that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, not everybody would agree with that. There are those who believe that Genesis is a story with no basis in reality that it is a myth made up for a pre-scientific people who needed a concept of God to explain that which they could not explain. And those who hold this position believe that evolutionary theory alone is sufficient to explain all that exists. 
On the other end of that continuum, we have what's called the young earth creationist. Uh, Ken Ham and his creation museum in northern Kentucky represent this group. And they would say that Genesis 1 is to be read literally. That the six days of creation are actually 24-hour days. And that later, a universal flood described in the story of Noah and the ark took place and water covered the entire planet. And using Old Testament genealogies, they propose that the universe and our planet is around 6,000 years old. And so if you would go to their museum, uh, you will see dinosaurs pictured living at the same time as humans. And they will say the flood is the likely explanation for the demise of dinosaurs. And the pressure created by the weight of the floodwaters was a primary force in creating fossils. Now, sort of in between, we have what's called the evolutionary theists. This position believes that God is a source of all of life and that life expresses the very will of God. They believe that there is a synthesis of science and, and Scripture and that science does not conflict with the Bible. It actually enhances it. Uh, this view begins by recognizing what Genesis 1 through 3 is meant to teach and what it is not meant to teach. These verses are clearly meant to lay claim to the fact that God is the creator of everything, that nothing exists apart from the creative word of God, his will, and his power. They would say that the Genesis account teaches us that God is the rightful ruler of all things, that he is the owner of all things, and that all things are a reflection of the creator. Now, these verses are meant to teach us that everything that God designed is good, that God created everything out of love for you and me and a desire to give God's own self to us. But they would also say that Genesis was not meant to teach us the how and the when of creation, that Genesis is set in this poetic language of faith and not science. Now, this doesn't mean the poetry of Genesis stands counter to scientific discoveries, but that it serves a higher purpose, leading you and I to truth about God, about our Creator, and about our relationship to God. They would say that the creation poem is meant to communicate the purpose of life and not to be a scientific textbook. Well, in 1929, Edwin Hubble discovered that the galaxies are moving away from ours, that everything in the universe is literally flying apart. And this led him to suggest that at one point, all of these galaxies were together in one incredible, massive entity. And that about 14 billion years ago, the universe began in a single moment. And he called that what? the Big Bang. Here's the problem. What was before that? What do you have before that? You have nothing. And how do you have something come out of nothing? You see, only Genesis has the answer to that. Only God can create something out of nothing. And only the Bible can tell us why we and the universe exist. The story begins with a big bang, but it is not an accident, and it's not by chance. 
So why? Why did God do all this? It comes out of, comes down to a garden that God called Eden. The Bible says with the confluence of two rivers. Chapter 2 now. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Now I've done a lot of research and a lot of study. And I think I have finally found those two rivers and where they meet together, the Garden of Eden. And you should see it up there on the map. <laughs> Anderson Township. Who knew that the confluence of the Ohio and Little Miami rivers was the Garden of Eden? I'm just kidding. Actually, it was the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the Bible says that in this garden, God created you and me. That God created the entire universe and the 100 billion galaxies that we have found to date to display God's glory. But his ultimate objective comes down to who he put in the garden, Adam and Eve. Amazing that God the Father, God the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, the community of God, desires to come down and to do life, to do community with us. You see, what matters most to God are relationships. And so God instills in Adam and Eve something that is different from the rest of all of creation. He gives within us humans the freedom to choose. And he gives us a way to declare that decision. God places two trees, verse 9 says, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life, it would signal to God that they embrace his vision of life together. And if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they'd be signaling to God of their rejection of this vision. Which brings us to chapter 3. The story of the fall. They have two choices. The good option that is moral and right and good for the sake of others. And then the other option that is warring within us. The evil choice which is all about me getting what I want at the expense of others. And they are lied to by the serpent and they believe the lie. How many times a day are we faced with the same temptation? And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. At this moment, something profound happens. Something changes in their nature. Sin begins to run through their bloodstream. The first thing they do is to clothe themselves. They feel shame, and they feel uh, vulnerable to each other, and so they cover up to protect themselves from the other person, and we have been in this defensive mode ever since. And almost immediately, we see the impact of their choice. Chapter 4 tells the story of the birth of, of Cain and Abel. And Abel is a shepherd, and, and Cain is a farmer. 
And they get into a disagreement about what to bring as an offering to the Lord. And, and Cain, Cain gets angry about it. So the very first argument that takes place in the very first family is a religious argument. <laughs> Go figure. But Cain has a choice of how he's going to respond he can get some feedback from his brother and find out how to give a better offering to please the Lord. In fact, God even gives him some coaching. He says, why are you angry? Do what is right, and will you not be accepted? But he doesn't. He chooses to allow jealousy and anger to rule in his heart, and he plots to kill his brother. And hence, we see the effects of original sin. Theologians call it original sin. The, the sin nature has been passed down from, from parents to, to children. The human race has been infected. Uh, Charles Wesley, the hymn writer of the Methodist movement, describes this condition in his hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. He writes, Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. The psalmist confirms this in Psalm 51. He writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Now, it's difficult to wrap your, your head around this, but just like my father gave me the blue eyes that I have, he also gave me his sin nature. <laughs> which he got from his father, who got it from his father, and all the way back to Adam and Eve. And you can see this sin nature at work every time you turn on the news or open up your newspaper. The sin nature keeps us from God, and it, it keeps us out of fellowship. It keeps us out of the garden. And the further that humanity gets from God, the expressions of evil get worse and worse. And so by chapter 6, the Bible says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Evil all the time. And verse 6 is probably the saddest words in the Old Testament. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings. And so God decides to do a, to start over, a do-over. You ever gotten to the point where you have tried everything but nothing is working, you have to go back to square one and start all over again? That's where this project has gotten to. It's hopeless. But there was one little glimmer of light. In verse 8 it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. A, a man named Noah and his family shines in this dark state of affairs. And Genesis calls him a, a righteous man, a blameless among the people of his time, for he walked faithfully with God. You see, that's what God has been looking for the whole time. God's supreme passion is to be with us, to walk with us at all costs, to do whatever is necessary to have a relationship with, crea with his creation. My friends, do you know that, that all the beauties of creation are secondary to you? That's how much God treasures you. And so Noah builds this gargantuan ark. It's now across the river in Kentucky. <laughs> you can see it. 
He gathers up his family and two of every animal. The door is closed and this massive flood hits the earth. Forty days later, the water, the storm stops. And when the flood waters recede, the family comes out of the ark. And the first thing that Noah does is to offer a sacrifice. And God says, never again. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. And never again will I destroy all living creatures. So what do we learn from Genesis? That God is the creator of everything. That nothing exists apart from God's will, God's power, from God's creating word. And we learn why. We learn why God created, to be in a, a loving relationship with humankind. And, and we learn why that relationship with God seems so elusive, that there is something that separates us from God and, and from each other, and that it runs deep, deep within us. And so Genesis agrees with science that first there was nothing, and then there was light. And, and from this beginning, all the galaxies of the universe were formed. That three millennia before scientists told us that the earth would be formless and void, for nearly a billion years before life began to appear, the story of Genesis suggested that this would happen. That 32 centuries before Darwin proposed that life began in the seas, the author of Genesis told us the first creatures were made in the waters. The God said that the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. And that 3,000 years before chemists helped us to understand that even living beings come from the same carbon compounds that are found in the earth, the writers of Genesis tell us that God took the dust of the earth and he shaped it into a human being and breathed into the breath of life. You see, for those who choose not to believe the truth of Genesis, they look for an explanation of life without God. Some people feel that a logical consequence of, of a universe without God means that life was simply the result of chance and mutation. So there's no purpose and there's no order and there's no, there's, there, there's no meaning, there's no plan to life as we know it. That all is simply chance. And that survival and reproduction are the ultimate goals of life. But I would say that Genesis is not anti-science. That science helps to explain much about life here on earth. And yet the scientists that I know don't think that science explains everything. And they know that scientists are not in complete agreement. And that for a vast majority of people, they cannot explain the, the marvels and the wonders of life. That there are many who believe that there is an intelligent design behind this universe and that many of us call that God. What do you think? Are we here by chance or by design? You see, Genesis reminds us that God is the creator. That before the Big Bang, God was that he spoke and a big bang and life began and that you are created in his image, that you are no accident, that you are no random mutation, that you were designed by God to love and to be loved and to be in an intimate relationship with him, that you were designed to know God and to worship God and to do his will. 
And we learn, we'll learn later on that this creator sent his son into space and time to show us how to live, to give us a, a little glimpse of who God is, and then to die on the cross so that you and I can live with him forever. And my friends, if you've never met this creator savior, today is the day for that to happen. Because once you do that, once you make that decision to follow Christ, things will begin to make sense to you. Your life will begin to gain purpose and meaning and that elusive peace and hope and joy will begin to be yours. After the flood, God established a covenant and he made a rainbow that would be the sign of this promise that God makes with humankind. And we're going to discover that this, this covenant will be the first of five covenants that God will make with his creation. That God makes a covenant with Abraham that he will be the father of a new nation. That God makes a covenant with Moses that Israel will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That God will make a covenant with David that his descendants will sit on his throne forever. And that finally God will make a covenant with you and me that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The cup and the bread, like the rainbow, are signs of this most holy covenant. Let's prepare our hearts and our minds now to celebrate this covenant, this promise that God has made with us. Amen.